As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul kept an eye on David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholothite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. 
Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I'm a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went, along with his men, and killed two hundred of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have at hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread at hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it for there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that, give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands. 
and made marks on the door of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Akish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now imagine the scene. A man is on his own and he's running. It's heavy breath, wide open eyes, fear on his face. He's tired, but he's not stopping. It's like a scene from a film, maybe a film like The Fugitive, running, hunted, not looking back. He's running for refuge. This man's name is Abiathar. He's the son of Ahimelech, the priest of the Lord, who we've just heard read about. But now he's the only priest left in Israel. Saul has brutally overseen the destruction of the 85 priests and their households. Because as we've just read, Ahimelech gave bread to David. And Abiathar alone escaped. And he fled after David. And at the end of chapter 22, listen to what David said to him. It's there at the bottom right hand um, of page 295. Chapter 22, verse 23. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. Where is the safest place you could possibly be? Perhaps you've got a safe place, a place you like to be, a safe space, a person who you feel secure with. We live in a world where security is measured by might, the biggest dad at school, the military alliance with the best weapons, the strong man or woman in politics or in the office, the in crowd in the school or the college. Or perhaps security is found in the bank balance or the reputation or the delivery track record or the relationship we have or want. I was chatting to someone last week who shared how a number of their friends were just feeling so full of uncertainty because apparent sources of security in life had crumbled and they were craving something or someone dependable. Well, our chapters this morning, they show us the life of David on his way to being established as king in Israel. Remember Hannah's prayer back in chapter 2, verse 10? The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Well, David is the Lord's anointed one. He's God's chosen king. He's a shadow or a picture, if you like, of God's ultimate king, Jesus Christ. And here in these chapters, he is being established as king. But as we've been reading, there is perhaps a surprise, a shock maybe, 
because he suffers. And these chapters are full of it. Moment after moment, distress and suffering, despair and hostility. Hostility for David and those who pledge their allegiance to him. And the author of 1 Samuel wants us to see that, well, this is the path for the Lord's anointed, who will be exalted and established as king. And he shows us it in great detail so that, well, we aren't thrown by the suffering of God's king. We aren't wobbled by the hostility he faces. And so that we'll hold fast in allegiance to him. And so perhaps the verse we've just read, chapter 22, verse 23, captures, if you like, the big application. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. Where is the safest place we could possibly be? Well, the search for security is simpler than we might imagine, but also perhaps more surprising than we might imagine. It's with God's suffering king, and it's because the Lord is with him. And so that's our first point. The Lord is with his anointed one who deserves our love. The way we'll tackle this big section this morning is to spend most of our time in a few key passages to help us see some of the big ideas. But then it would be great to reread them and reread the whole chapters and just see those things um, all through the narrative. But we'll start in chapter 18. It's back a few pages on page 290. Page 290. Now, if you're a fan of the FA Cup, you'll have no doubt heard the term giant killing used when a small team beats a big club. I've discovered that some mathematicians claim to have created a mathematical model to calculate the biggest ever FA Cup giant killing. And according to their sums, it was when Little Woking Town beat Big West Bromwich Albion 4-2 in 1991. And according to them, Woking only had a 16 million to 1 probability of winning. The biggest FA Cup giant killing. And nowadays, whether it's football or sports or politics or even TV shows, the post-match reaction is big business. And chapter 18 is a bit like the post-match reaction to David's great victory over Goliath, the Philistine. And his success, well, it runs right through the chapter. Did you notice it as Phil read it out to us? Verse 5, and David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. Verse 14, and David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And verse 30, the princes of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. David was successful. And not only was he successful, but he was good. Verse 5 again, and this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And that word good is a significant word in 1 Samuel. It's the word that was translated better in chapter 15 when Samuel tells Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you, literally who is gooder than you. And so all through these chapters, we see how good David is. He is courageous. He is obedient. He is humble. He is innocent. He seeks God's word and listens to it. He brings salvation. He leads. He protects. 
And the author reminds us why David is so good. Verse 14, David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. Here is the Lord's anointed, and the Lord is with him, and the post-match reaction to his great victory, his great salvation, is love. Verse 16, but all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before him, before them. Love. All Israel and Judah loved him. And love is a big theme in this chapter, and we're particularly shown it as we look at Jonathan's love for David. And so we'll zoom in on a few verses in chapter 18, verses 1 to 4. Verse 1, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. All the details of these verses help us understand what it means for Jonathan to love David. They present us a wonderful picture of human friendship. But Jonathan's love is about more than that. Jonathan's soul is knit to David because he sees David brilliantly and wonderfully doing what God's king should do. First, Jonathan initiates a covenant with him in verse 3. And it's an action of loyalty, of utter commitment. And then verse 4 is remarkable. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. So we need to remember who David and Jonathan are. David is the Lord's anointed But Jonathan, well, he is a seasoned warrior who was defeating Philistines when David was still a shepherd boy. More than that, Jonathan is Saul's son. He is the first in line to the throne of Israel. He's the Prince of Wales. On December the 11th, 1936, the United Kingdom heard these words over the radio. A few hours ago, I discharged my last duty as king and emperor. And now that I've been succeeded by my brother, the Duke of York... My first words must be to declare my allegiance to him. This I do with all my heart. Edward VIII's words as he abdicated the throne, and that is what's going on here. This is Jonathan as he takes off his royal robe and gives it to David, abdicating the throne. He recognizes David is performing the salvation that God's king will bring, and so he humbles himself and he submits to him. And the author draws it out with the repeated word, and. He stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor. Lost place. And his sword. And his bow. And his belt. Stunning humility. As if to say, David, you be king. And I will rejoice in it. Very briefly, it's worth dealing with the suggestion that's been a trend in recent years that because of the intimate language of being knit together and covenant that these verses speak of, that there's a sexual relationship between Jonathan and David. There's no suggestion of that at all in the text. And in fact, we'll remember who David is and who Jonathan is 
And then we consider the deliberate details the author carefully gives us. Well, we see this is a picture of what it means to love God's king. And as Robert Gordon helpfully points out in this chapter, apart from Saul, that is, everyone loves David. To love God's king, well, it's to pledge total allegiance to him. As David foreshadows God's ultimate king, his saving king, the Lord Jesus, we see here a picture in Jonathan of what it looks like to love the Lord Jesus. We might ask ourselves, well, what would it look like to love Jesus today? Perhaps we long to love him more and we just don't quite know where to start. Well, in John 14, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. As we consider the saving work of Jesus, our affections will be stirred in different ways. But our love is our response to him. As one writer puts it, our glad acceptance of him as our leader, our humble allegiance, listening to him and keeping his word, putting his word into action in our lives. So that act of service in the home, the perseverance to read the Bible with our family, the prayerful battling of sin the decision to speak of Jesus in the workplace or the school, countless acts of obedience to our king. This is love. The Lord is with his anointed one who deserves our love. But as the Lord establishes his king, well, some will hate him, and it will lead to his suffering. And this is our second point. The Lord is with his anointed one who will suffer. In the post-match responses, there's always one voice that's not happy. If you listen to any of the radio phone-ins about the uh, the sporting events, you hear that voice who wasn't happy with it. Well, verse 6, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. As the women sing and rejoice in this great victory, a victory that the Lord has brought through David and through Saul, well, Saul doesn't see it that way. The Hebrew poetry um, works as two lines, and it could be just two lines together to emphasize one point. The singers may not be making a distinction between David and Saul so much as rejoicing in the whole victory. But Saul doesn't see it like that. Verse 8, he was very angry and the saying displeased him. He said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul kept an eye on David from that day on. So why is Saul so hostile? Well, he's jealous. He wants the throne. What more can he have but the kingdom? But the thing is, God's already removed the throne from Saul, but Saul doesn't want to leave it. He won't let go, and David is a threat. Verse 15, when Saul saw that David had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. I've been reading a book recently by a lady called Christabel Bielenberg about her life in Nazi Germany. And she describes a society where more and more those who were perceived as threats to Hitler's power were in various ways removed. And we just see that kind of thing all through history, don't we? Hostility to any threat to personal power. 
And throughout these chapters, we see Saul set against David because he wants to cling to the throne. And what's so striking is that the more evident it is the Lord is with David, the more good David is shown to be, the more Saul fears him and wants to kill him. So at the end of our section in chapter 18, when verse 28, when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Why does he oppose him more the more he knows God's with him? Well, it is an expose of human pride. Human pride which sees ourselves as king and wants it to stay that way. And so the tragic darkness of human pride is that when confronted with the goodness of God's king, it fights tooth and nail to resist him. Or perhaps someone might object to say, well, I'm not for Jesus, and I'm not against him. I'm just neutral on the matter. But the human will that won't give allegiance to God's king is a will that is set against him. Here's how John Woodhouse puts it in his book on 1 Samuel. In the day-to-day business of life, it may not be obvious to us that our wills are set against the will of God. We may want so many good things Perhaps we act with moral probity much of the time. However, the will of God is not just that we should want to do good things. It's that Jesus Christ should be our Lord and the Lord of all people everywhere. Proud resistance to God's king. Well, it breaks out in hostility to him in the end. And we see that in David's suffering at the hand of Saul. Twice the spears fly across the room towards David. Twice he evades them as they slam into the wall behind him. Then David's wife, Michal, lets him down through the bedroom to escape from Saul's messengers. She covers an idol under the blankets, puts goat's hair at its head to try and trick them so that David can get away. But Saul's so fixed on killing David, he says, bring him up to me in his bed that I may kill him. Even David himself says to Jonathan, truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. And it's no exaggeration, one step to the right, one step to the left, and it had been pinned to the wall by a spear. And all through these chapters, we have scenes that show how acute David's suffering is, his peril. So turn with me to chapter 21 on page 294. And we're just going to look at one of those that we had read out for us. Chapter 21, verse 10. David rose and fled that day from Saul, and he went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, when we hear the word, the name Gath, well, perhaps alarm bells are ringing. We do know someone from Gath, Goliath. Why would David flee to the land of the Philistines? And not just to their land, but to the hometown of their hero who he killed and beheaded. Well, through these chapters, we see Saul as he rages against David, becoming more and more like the nations, more and more like the king of the nations. He sits there holding a spear like Goliath. He sits under a tree and boasts of what he will take, take and take from Israel to give to his servants. And he's even rooting for the Philistines against David. He sent David on that mission for a hundred foreskins. But the whole point was that he hoped that they'd kill him. 
And so Psalm 2 begins to echo in our ears. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and their rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against the anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Saul has become like the nations, raging against David, wanting to hold on to the throne. And so maybe Gath is safer than Israel. Maybe it's the last place Saul would look for him. But Gath doesn't prove to be safe. David is spotted. Is, this not, is, this not, is not this David, the king of the land? Did not they sing to one another of him who dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Well, what can David do? He's afraid. He took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. And so David, well, perhaps does the only thing he can think of. He changes his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors and the gate and let spittle run down his beard. And remarkably, Achish lets him go. David is the man who's killed thousands of Philistines. They know the song. And it seems that he can dribble on his beard, scratch on the walls, and they say, get him out of here. Both Psalms 34 and 56 were written by David about this event. And they tell us in David's words what the author of 1 Samuel is showing to us. Psalm 34 verse 4, David says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. See, this remarkable rescue from Gath was the Lord's deliverance. The Lord's anointed suffers, but the Lord is with him and he will establish his throne. And this is the pattern for God's king. We said together those words from Luke's gospel. Taking the 12, Jesus said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spat upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. These chapters give us this picture of God's king coming to save. And when God's king comes to save, he will suffer at the hands of proud humanity. But he will rise. Hannah's song, the Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. And so our third point, the Lord is with his suffering anointed one. Remain with him. Throughout these chapters, Jonathan displays us a beautiful picture of allegiance to God's king. And in chapter 20, he confirms his allegiance to David, even over his father Saul. Just turn back one page, page 293. This scene in chapter 20 is David and Jonathan converse, and David helps Jonathan understand the peril he's in. But Jonathan pledges his allegiance to David. We'll pick up in verse 13. Jonathan speaking says, but should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he's been with my father. If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord 
that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Jonathan recognizes David will suffer, but he pledges his total allegiance to him because he knows the Lord is with him. He understands the kingdom is going to David. And so he makes peace with the coming king while he still has the opportunity in the present. He orders his allegiance now in light of the future. He departs from the doomed house of Saul and throws himself on the steadfast love of David. And repeatedly the author shows us the wisdom of this, how right this is to do, because Saul will not prevail. We saw in chapter 18, sent to the Philistines on a death mission. Could you imagine Saul's face when, when uh, David came back with not just 100, but 200 foreskins of the Philistines and lay them before him? All through these chapters, Saul cannot catch David. Perhaps most strikingly, as he pursues David to Samuel's house in Ramah, the Spirit of God overcomes him. And so we have this strange scene where Saul lies stripped of his clothes, naked on the floor, all night prophesying. Like Jonathan in chapter 18, he ends up without his royal robe. But Jonathan gave it to David willingly as a symbol of allegiance, whereas Saul is brought down and stripped of his robe compelled to bow before God's king. Hannah's prayer again, the Lord brings low and exalts. The adversaries of the Lord should be broken to pieces. The Lord Jesus suffered at the hands of sinful humanity, even to death on the cross, but he rose again to be seated at the right hand of God, the place of exaltation and executive power, and he rules as king over the world today. One day he will return and his enemies will be brought down. And so Psalm 2 ends. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Where is the safest place you can ever be? Perhaps you're here this morning and you've yet to put your trust in Jesus. And perhaps the stumbling block is the question, well, will he really be good for me? Or perhaps you're conscious of the cost of following him. After David escaped from Gath, he hid in the cave of Adullam. And we read in that cave that everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became captain over them. These are the people that came to David. They're the people that saw that life under Saul's rule was doomed. It would never ultimately deliver. They grasped that Jesus, well, he is good. That David, he is good. And he's only a threat to human rebellion. They took refuge in the king, made peace with him, pledged allegiance to him. For those who come to the Lord Jesus, he is saviour. He is perfect leader. He is wonderful captain. We are safe in the stronghold. And when we face trials or trouble, or when the enemy of death looms large, or our allegiance to Jesus means we experience hostility in the world, 
or when the temptation to walk away from Jesus is very strong. Well, what do we do? 22 verse 23. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. See, the temptation may be to compromise, to shift away from Jesus, to broker a deal with Saul, but safety is to stay with the suffering king. When we find ourselves in the workplace or the school, facing hostility for following Jesus, Jesus says, with me, you shall be in safekeeping. Parents, when our children face difficulty at school because they are loyal to Jesus, of course we want to think through the situations and make wise decisions. But this has really strengthened me to ensure I don't suggest they ever compromise their allegiance to him. Rather to encourage them in the security they have as they stay close to their suffering king. With me you shall be in safekeeping. And as we've heard messages of support this morning from bishops across the global Anglican communion. Well it may be costly to contend for Jesus and the Church of England in the coming months. But to stand faithfully for the Jesus and his word, to stand loyal to Jesus alone, even in the face of the hostility of human pride, is so very, very secure. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. And so let's our love, let's love our King Jesus. And when the pressure is on, let's not compromise. With him, we shall be in safekeeping. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, our suffering and exalted King. Please help us to love him as we gaze upon his brilliance. Please help us to love him with total humble allegiance and help us to remain with him always, knowing the eternal security he gives. In his precious name we pray. Amen.